Before we begin, as you may know, this podcast continues to produce new episodes, thanks primarily to you, the listener. Rather than working with marketing programs that encourage you to buy packaged and delivered meal plans, luxury mattresses, or audiobook subscriptions, during one or two campaigns a year, I ask you to directly support this work. Together, we can continue to reach thousands of people around the world, from Japan to Ethiopia, Canada to Costa Rica, with candid conversations about permaculture you won't hear anywhere else. Your support in these ongoing broadcasts change lives. Whether someone grows vegetables in a garden, plants food forests in a city, or brings together communities. If you think this show should continue, I'm asking you to participate in the annual Summer to Fall fundraiser, which runs until October 10th, 2017. The goal of raising $7,000 during this campaign is so, combined with ongoing Patreon support, I can continue to take care of myself and bring you another year of this show. You can give a one-time donation by going to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you want to become a monthly donor and help the show reach long-term stability, take a moment to go to patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. There you can check out the rewards for the various pledge levels and join at a level you are comfortable with. Any way you can join me in this campaign makes a difference, and together we can continue to create the beautiful world we want to see. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1724, Holistic Goat Care. My guest is the author, cheesemaker, and goat herd, Gianaclise Caldwell, of Folia Farm Dairy. She joins me to talk about her latest book, Holistic Goat Care, from Chelsea Green Publishing. Using that complete approach, we talk about goats on a farm and homestead, including needs and yields such as diet and nutrition, guard animals, common predators, fencing and shelter, and temperament and socialization. For those of you who want to raise goats, we also talk about what to expect when you expect to do so, like where to find your goats, and some reading and other preparations to start with before buying. In the end, Gianaclis demystifies the requirements and practices required to begin keeping a herd of goats, whether in the city, your suburban backyard, or on a farm. Enjoy this conversation, and I'll join you again afterwards. Then, Gianaclis, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing? And then we can take the conversation from there to talk about holistic goat care. Sure, that sounds great, Scott. So the property that we have our dairy on now was where I grew up here in southern Oregon. It was originally 220 acres that my parents started buying in the 1940s. And when they moved back here, they had an organic farm before it was very popular, and uh, we had dairy cows to milk. And so I was a dairy cow girl. I had cows in 4-H and was a dairy cow 4-H leader later, and then uh, left the left the area in the early 80s. And at our my husband, who's also from here, was in the Marine Corps, and it was very hard to have a cow with us as we traveled. But eventually, did end up at our last duty station, having a little bit of land, and was going to get a cow again. So uh, our daughter at the time was our youngest daughter, wanted to be part of that project, you know, and have some livestock. But she was a little bitty thing, and I thought, oh, she's not going to be able to manage a cow, so why don't I consider goats? Which, as a dairy cow person, I had always 
had kind of the stereotype of goats being, you know, substandard dairy animals. And uh, lo and behold, I am now a convert to goats as being the superior dairy animal. Uh, they just are so versatile, and their personality is amazing, and their milk is delicious when done properly. But uh, when we first got the goats, our motto was we would only ever have six goats and never own a buck. And within a year, we decided to build a dairy up here on the property once we could leave the military and, and of course, ended up with at least 40 goats milking and way more than six bucks. So <laughs> so that was the, the progression of that. And then I, I uh, had always wanted to write and got started writing with some books, uh, mostly for Chelsea Green on writing on this topic of small-scale dairying and things and and then this latest one is the holistic goat, and I, I thank the goats for teaching me about themselves and my parents for wanting me to be as natural as possible in all of these approaches. And is that natural mindset where you move into this direction of natural goat care? For sure, yes, where you're looking at nutrition and environment as your main influences on your health as a human and then of course it's the same for the animals so i you know i'm not against using conventional medications at all they have their place and my parents were chiropractors also and they had the same viewpoint as every health professional has their role but it's up to you to take care of your nutrition and other influences in your environment and of course for livestock it's not up to them, it's up to you because you've removed them from any options. Uh, so just learning over time that how you can keep these animals super healthy when you have an eye to their how they evolved and what would be natural for them. And then as probably my background, I was a nurse for about six years, my background in troubleshooting health issues, just looking at the, the body systems and things and uh, looking for things that are amiss, and uh, then they'll tell you when they need, need your help. And I feel fortunate that I got to interview Dr. Talia Fletcher out of Canada last year, and we got to talking about holistic veterinary medicine. Oh, good. Yeah, there are some great holistic vets coming out of Canada. <laughs> there really are. Yeah, and especially cattle and dairy operations because of that region in... Ontario, yep, yep, yeah. The, the University of Guelph is there, and if I'm saying that right, and a lot of dairy research occurs at that university also. And if I remember right, that's where she graduated from with her work. Probably. And then just learning about, initially from her, about, you know, just the time that we can spend with our animals and the little changes that we can make that improve their health through things like a diverse diet and ensuring they have a well-rounded nutrition and making sure that our barns are organized and laid out in such a way that it gives us a good opportunity to interact with the animals in that space so that they're not stressed and things like that. Yep, yep. And with that, I was wondering, what does holistic goat care and management look like? What kind of things are you doing on the farm or with your vet to take care of your goats and ensure that they have good nutrition? and everything that they need. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you start with is considering how the goat would do well in nature. And for goats, that's fairly arid, dry land, uh, with lots of ability to range out and browse, not graze. They like to eat at eye level. 
on a huge variety of shrubs, trees, and tall, what you would call forbs, so the broad-leafed weeds, are, as they're also known. And giving them access to all of that would supply everything they'd need. Of course, in, uh, on a small farm, in very rare situations, can you do that? So a small farm is going to try to make up for that by looking around at your land, seeing what you have to offer, and then trying to fill in the gaps. So the land we live on here in Oregon is relatively arid compared to some parts of the of the country, and we have a lot of forest land. So there's those opportunities to take them out to browse. And uh, goats, fortunately, being what are you would call a following animal, not a herd. You don't need a dog to herd them. They will follow you. So I literally open the gate and say, come on, ladies, and they go with me on a hike. They browse in the forest that way. I can't just leave them loose in the forest because of their love for tree bark <laughs> would mean rapid deforestation. Yeah, so you have that management becomes more difficult, uh, especially in a, if you're trying to use them in permaculture. You really have to protect every tree that you want to survive, and permaculture becomes a as a as a whole land management issue, very different with goats. But anyway, if you can provide that variety of browse, you're there eating trees and plants and bits of those, and those sorts of plants put their roots deep in the earth and bring up much more mineral content than grasses do. They believe that goats have a higher mineral requirement than any other livestock because of the way they evolved eating these sorts of plants. So if you can't provide that that access to browse, then you need to supplement it in another way. And the way I also do that is by offering a buffet of individual minerals. And goats, cows, and sheep will learn to dose themselves with what they need. Uh, So on one day, you know, they might need a little copper because they didn't get enough from the plants they ate. And they will take care of themselves really well that way. It's pretty remarkable to watch. So in in nutrition, that's how you approach it with the animal for the goat. Um, If you have to buy in a lot of feeds, trying to figure out uh, what the nutrition content is of those feeds. I don't ever take the approach of, uh, you know, trying to totally analyze their diet because there's no way to quantify the nutritional components of all those trees and plants, especially given that even when you give them all access to the same variety, they're going to each as an individual eat different quantities and pick and choose what they think they need, kind of like they do with that mineral buffet. So you then just look at the animal, like you were mentioning, looking at them, and see how their health looks. Is a shiny coat, uh, good body condition? Are they not too chubby? Are they just the right weight? How do they behave? Do they act like they're feeling healthy? Goats are, you know, there's a wor- reason the word capricious is based in the word goat for capra because goats like to play. And uh, when they're not frisky and not uh, having a good time, they're probably not feeling well. Then housing-wise, They like to be dry. They are one of the only livestock that won't go out in the rain (laughs) when given a choice. So uh, they need good shelter in the rain. They don't need protection from cold as much as they do from wet. So good dry area with a lot of ventilation is good for that. And then not overcrowding them so that they, they aren't stressed by numbers. 
goats would normally rear themselves or be raised in peer groups of their own uh, age level, and then they would have friends for life that would help with their stress also and keeping them happy. Speaking to that social requirement, what's the ideal size as a minimum for a herd of goats? Two. <laughs> you, you have to have two. And, it, and I've found that odd numbers only work when you get a lot of goats. But if you just let's say you, want, you have three goats or five goats, there is usually always an odd one out because they do buddy up. But if that, that group of five was raised together, they're going to be fine. So it really is about them having peer groups. I tell people it's like if you, if you went to a new high school and you could take your whole, all your friends with you, you'd do just fine. But if you're just the only one that moved, it's pretty stressful. And when it comes to those goats that you have together and their peer groups, do they all have to be the same breed, or can you kind of mix and match to meet the needs of your farm and your family? You can, you can mix and match, but it's a lot based, too, on and not just the peer group or the breed, but the size of the animal. The bigger they are, often the more likely they're going to be aware of their power and bully others. So you can have, um, you know, some, some big goat breeds are much more docile. The, the big white sawnen goat is known for being very docile, so they can often cohabit with smaller breeds and not be the bullies. Uh, some smaller breeds are more bullying than, than that, uh, so it's a bit about their personality. The breeder, the farmer that's raising these animals, has a lot to, to do with that personality. If over time you select for goats that have what I call a good work ethic, you're eventually going to get a whole line of animals that are that are uh, more pleasant to work with. If you aren't picky about them being noisy and you just like how pretty colors, then you might end up with a lot of beautiful noisy goats. So. <laughs> and because you're running a dairy, are you raising all of your goats for milk production, or are you also keeping some for meat? Uh, well, let me back up a tiny bit because we did stop our commercial dairy production last fall, and now I just have a small herd for home dairy, teaching, and all of that. And then also the caveat that you can eat every goat. <laughs> so every, every goat could be a meat goat, and every female of every breed could be a dairy goat. If you just need a home milk supply, you can milk a boar goat, which is a famous meat goat breed, and they make excellent milk. So they can be very versatile that way. And, of course, as with all livestock, the original use was multipurpose. You know, so you would milk the mom, eat the unwanted or unneeded, I should say, offspring, harvest their coats to make, make things out of. So ours, ours are primarily still dairy uh, for milk purposes, but I do teach a class here on uh, humane butcher slaughter and even anatomy and physiology, looking at the inside of the animal, it's, it really informs so much of how you can care for them when you can picture what's going on inside. And it's also a way for, for producers to troubleshoot what might have happened with an animal that passed on. You know, if, they, if they have the mind to do that, it takes a little bit of, a little bit of adjusting <laughs> of your paradigm. But we don't eat too much meat here. I've been a vegetarian for like almost 25 years now, and 
but I, I believe that eating meat is natural. Uh, not the way it's done in the, in our society for the most part, of course, with with uh, the way animals are raised and treated. But a small inter- integrated farm, uh, meat is an important part of that. There's a poultry farmer I know who's running an integrated system, and he says that he gives his animals the best life possible, except for that one day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Marsha Baranaga at a creamery in Mar- Marin County down in California sheep dairy. She gave me a nice quote years ago. She said, uh, every animal go- deserves a good life, a good death, a good butcher, and a good chef. <laughs> I like that. I could see that as a sign in my kitchen, as a reminder of my responsibility to the animals and my role as the chef. Yeah, yeah. And if you, I mean, if you believe that humans are a, a part of the planet, which I sometimes don't think we, we really can be the way we're messing it up, but uh, if you think we're part of that food system... We do have the ability to give that animal a death far more gentle and kind than a predator would. So if we can give them a good life and then honor them and appreciate them on the plate, never waste meat, it is the right thing. And when it comes to the animals for your dairy, how often are you breeding them in order to keep them in lactation? And how long do you usually wait between the time when they're born and that first breeding? in production for the dairy? On our dairy, and and still, I usually try to have them give birth for the first time at age one, but if I feel like they're too small or I'm going to have too many babies to manage properly that following spring, then I'll breed them to to kid at two years of age. Uh, Goat has about a five-month gestation period when they're pregnant, so typically you'll breed in the fall for spring kidding, you can milk a goat on what is called, and you could do this with cows too, but it's not usually done, on what's called an extended lactation where you don't rebreed them. You just keep on milking. And I have uh, had a friend who's now passed on, but her dairy is still still going in North Carolina. It's called Split Creek Dairy. She milks about 300 goats, I believe, and usually only breeds all of them twice in their lifetime and just keeps milking them. Because goats have what are called litters, <laughs> so we've had up to six born to one mother, you have a lot of babies to manage. With cows, you have one calf, rarely two, and it, the management of that off, those offspring becomes a huge labor issue, as, and that also means that you could overcrowd the pens, bring stress to those babies, so deciding to continue to milk an animal on a commercial dairy is, is a great way to manage that. But, and for the home producer who maybe can't access a buck for breeding to the doe or just doesn't want to try to find homes for babies, they can just milk a goat for years, if it's a good goat that's, that can keep in milk. On that note, you can also milk once a day instead of twice a day, which is the paradigm. Uh, I, have a, I have a blog post about that and talk about it as a management option. It's a way to reduce labor. A good goat and, or a good cow will give you about 75 to 80% of the milk that she would have if you were being milked twice a day. So you can see how those numbers, uh, they're pretty great. You know, about half the labor for 75% of the product is pretty good. <laughs> When you're milking, is that something that's done entirely by hand, 
And also, how much milk can someone expect from one goat per day? The production is going to vary greatly based on not only the breed, but how old the, the animal is and how many babies she had. If she has six babies, her body will have told her to make more milk. If she has one baby, she's going to make less milk. So that it has to be factored in just in general, average overall. Nigerian dwarfs, which are a small breed that we specialize in, will a good doe will give you about a half a gallon a day at her peak and probably taper off to more like a quart, quart and a half a day after that. And then a younger doe might just start at a quart a day. Now, a big goat breed that's a really top milker could go up to a gallon to two gallons a day. So that they're, they're just, they vary greatly in their size on that. So it's, it's one of the reasons I actually really like the small breed is because, uh, you know, that goes back to that number issue. You have to have more than one, and you fall in love with them, and you might want five goats, six goats. Uh, so if you're keeping six goats that are giving a gallon a day, <laughs> that's an awful lot of milk. So uh, you, the smaller breed, it makes it a little easier to to justify those numbers. And, and then, too, in the cities that are allowing goats, urban goats, which are quite a few of the big cities now are allowing that, they have to be the small miniature goats. So it's a good choice for that. And keeping them in pairs, that's a half a gallon of milk a day for a family that just has two goats. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where the, the cheesemaking, excuse me, where the cheesemaking comes in, and that's actually what took me on my, I know we're not talking about cheesemaking yet, but <laughs> uh, it took me on my path to cheesemaking was, what are we going to do with all this milk? And, and uh, I'm not a big milk drinker myself. I like it in my coffee, but uh, the dairy products you can make from, from the milk are just really much more, uh, uh, you're removing a lot of water when you do that, and making products that are preservable, too. And for my family, we are big dairy drinkers. None of us have any issues with lactose or anything like that. So dairy plays a pretty big role in our diet. And I can imagine drinking quite a bit of that milk before we'd have to turn it into cheese or something like that. And you mentioned earlier that goat milk, if done properly, is a really good product. What did you mean by that? Well, goat milk suffers from a, a bit of a identity crisis as far as flavor. Uh, if you have had poor quality goat milk, you associate it with a goaty, bucky flavor and aroma. And it is very true of a lot of goat milk, uh, especially that commercially large-scale produced. Goat milk is very delicate compared to cow's milk, and that's one reason it's easier to digest but it also means it's easier to damage. So pumping, um, storage, uh, rough, it, it being hauled in tanker trucks and kept refrigerated for long periods of time brings out those aromas and flavors that wouldn't be there otherwise. So folks who've tried goat cheese or goat milk that has that aroma and flavor can be pretty turned off of it, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm right there with them on that. In fact, I... Uh, when we go someplace and there's goat cheese to try, uh, my husband, Vern, he tries it first to let me know if I'm going to like it or not. <laughs> so, But that you can make it yourself and produce it where that's not present at all, just through gentle handling, very clean processing, and rapid chilling. 
So it's just, just fragile, and it, it um, can't be treated like cow milk. I, I tell people goats and cows are a bit like their milk. You know, goats, goats are pretty vocal about if you're not doing things the way they like it, and cows are more go with the program, and their milk's a lot like that too. <laughs> and what you said really speaks to my own experience, because I've had some really good goat milk that I really enjoy, but I think about those times that Here in Pennsylvania, we have the Pennsylvania Farm Show that runs every January. And my children and I have gone and we'd walk the animal pens and things like that really since the time that they could walk. And when we would go through the goat section, I remember walking past some bucks that had this really rich, earthy goat smell. And I've had some goat milk and goat cheese that have that kind of flavor and aroma to it. But there's a local goat dairy that delivers to one of our farm stands. And if I remember right, they get theirs from the goats into the bottled and delivered within a day or so. And usually their use-by date is no more than like a week. And that stuff is just rich, delicious, creamy, and completely different from many of the other goat products I've found elsewhere. Yeah, when the milk can be handled on the smaller scale, it's going to do, do quite well. It's it's when it gets mass produced that there are those compromises of time on the shelf. And uh, in, according to research, an article I read, a paper, that's the milk, the pumps that are pumping the milk through these larger systems that do the most damage. There's an old farmer's tale. I don't call them wives' tales. I call them old farmer's tales. But uh, that having a buck, the stinky male, living near the does will cause that flavor in milk, and it's not true. So uh, that's one thing hopefully everyone will take away from this. It's not the buck's fault. The, the aroma of the buck, which is that really stinky, musky odor, doesn't absorb through the udder into the milk. If buck scent gets on the dough and you don't clean her properly or the milk pail sits open in the barn, it might absorb some of those aromas but it's not going to be just the buck's fault. And, and I always also, too, the way the buck smells, which most of us find quite unappealing, is very appealing to the doe. So it's not his fault <laughs> if the ladies like it. <laughs> because that smell is for the goats, not for us. Exactly. <laughs> In talking about small scale, what to you is a small operation? Like from two goats up to how many? Yeah, you know, I wish I had the page open where I actually defined that in my book here. Because <laughs> I, I did uh, decide that I would try to, for, for just for the sake of the book anyway, define that. And uh, I'll, I'll guess here and hopefully come pretty close. But uh, small scale, you know, home scale would be, in, you know, you could have 20 goats and still be home scale. And then a small commercial would be more like 100 or so goats. And you could be smaller than that, of course. Uh, we had we milked only 40 at our peak, and most of those were Nigerian, so, you know, very small amount of milk. Um, but And then large commercial is going to be more like 500 to 1,000 goats. And then beyond that, you go into the mega range. And there are dairies, in, especially in Europe, that, you know, that milk Twenty, thirty thousand goats in one operation, and and this is the way that you can buy imported goat cheese for so cheap. 
so if you're if people are buying goat products and wonder why those here in the states cost so much, uh, it's usually because we don't have those mega, mega scale goat dairies. And when you're working on a small scale, is there commercial milking equipment that's available? Yes, you can milk by hand, but it is somewhat inefficient. Uh, I have a milking machine and. I, I can milk as fast as the milking machine on one goat, but I can put two goats on the machine at the same time or up to four. So that really speeds the efficiency. And when you're trying to, as a farmer, as you know, no doubt know, you have so much to get done and so much to accomplish in a day. So any time you can speed things up without a loss of um, quality in that production, those are important steps to take. So yes, there's quite a lot, good lot of uh, commercial dairy equipment for small scale, and, uh, in de- including a lot that's made in, in Pennsylvania or other places by Amish and Mennonite companies and families because they have such a need for that on their farms. So a lot of the equipment that I ended up with uh, came from back that way. Um, good stuff and, and designed for the small producer. And home producers, too, can, there are a lot of, luckily a lot of choices in that regard. Hand milking is the most relaxing for me. Goats like the machine equally well because it mimics how a baby nurses, uh, but not having all that noise and equipment to clean up, I, I, and I like seeing the foam build up in the pail. And I ask that because... One of my permaculture instructors spent some time in England, and while he was there, was responsible for, I think it was 100 or 150 goats as part of a herd, and what I remember from his story is that he was milking all of them by hand. I don't remember if he was doing that by himself or not, but it just seemed like that was a lot of hand milking for a herd that seemed relatively large. Well, I'll tell you, it does give you some pretty buff forearms, so he probably came out looking like Popeye at the end. When it comes to starting out, what kind of space do you need? Can it be done with a relatively small amount of land? Or do you need a half acre or an acre or more to begin keeping goats? City goats are are quite popular and possible. Because goats are so sociable, you can take them for walks on a leash. Uh, they just you can get them. You can keep them in very small areas as long as you provide activity and exercise in some other fashion. Um, so yeah, but it, the size is more about how you then then manage their needs versus needing a lot of space. Because remember, they're not going to be grazing on pastures, so you can't say like how many head. I take that back. You can graze goats on pasture, but it's not their preferred food, so you can keep them on a dry lot and bring branches to them or take them out for walks and eat branches and brambles. And If you're doing that in the city or suburbs, you need to watch out for things that have been sprayed, of course, by, a, by for road control and things. And that's where I'm thinking of where my children live because there's a full acre there, and it's got brambles and ivy, multiflora rose on a hillside, and just all kinds of things that either the goats could be led to, or could be taken to them if they were in some kind of an enclosure. 
Yeah, they love all of that. And I tell, tell people that, remember, goats, goats are extremely picky about what they'll eat. They won't eat things that have been trampled on. They don't like to eat things that have been licked by others. Like, they don't like salt blocks. They want loose salt minerals because they don't want the saliva of the other goat that touched it. They don't like a lot of things, but what they do like are things that to us sound like they're not not good, like poison oak and blackberries and uh, the multiflora rose, kudzu. So they're very selective, but they like a lot of things. So they can do very well on land that wouldn't be good for horses or cattle. And uh, they, like I said, will kill trees. So you do have to watch that if you're trying to protect some things. And when it comes to protecting trees and plants from goats, I think of things like tree tubes or netting. But when it comes to establishing pens and paddocks, what are the fencing requirements for something like that? Fencing is a challenge with goats for several reasons. They're not big jumpers when they're older, but they do like to lean and push and scratch on fences. So chain link will get stretched out. They like to put their heads through fences. So if there are holes and the goat has horns, you could be in a lot of trouble that way with the goat getting stuck or breaking a horn off. Uh, So they're challenging defenses in that regard. Uh, hot wire fences, electric net fencing can be used, but uh, goats don't ground out well, You know, meaning they're not often making really good contact with the soil, so then they won't shock themselves necessarily, and then they can get stuck in the electric net fencing. So I have a good section in the book on, on considerations with fencing. Goats also don't want to leave their safe area. So many farmers I know, including ourselves, our pastures aren't even completely fenced because we know the goats won't go that far. So it's not as though the fence is there to keep them from escaping because they won't run away. It's to protect other things, as you mentioned, like trees and your rose garden or (laughs) your garden. So you you have to fence in the things you want to protect rather than fencing in the goat. <laughs> kind of like the old pioneer, you know, in the old pioneer days, your yard was to keep the cows out, not to keep the cows in. <laughs> and what you mentioned there reminds me of something that I've seen before. I think it's just been referred to as a goat run, where a wire is run between two poles, similar to a clothesline, and then a leash is attached from that to the goat. That is highly discouraged. I Yeah, goats tied out are also known as a fast food stop for coyotes and dogs. Uh, they are really prone to predation by things coming when they're captive like that. If you, for some reason, lived in a country without predators, like New Zealand, uh, you, could, you could probably do that and be okay. But then again, there's still the, the roaming pet dog is the the one that causes the most livestock damage in the United States. So uh, you'll see tethered goats, but it's, uh, I do mention that in the book too, but it's, um, it's not usually a, a kind thing to do. Goats are prey animals, as are most livestock, meaning they have a, an awareness of being vulnerable. And when that goat feels like they can't defend themselves, can't escape, they are going to be stressed. They might be safe, but they don't know it. 
So uh, that's the thing to think about. And a little bit on that note, uh, you might have heard of fainting goats, the myotonic goats. Those are the ones that have a constant state of varying degrees of muscular contraction to where they either move stiffly or if they're nervous or uh, agitated, they'll fall over. And I believe that's a very stressful way to live. You can imagine how it would feel to know that you couldn't run if you needed to. And they say humans with the same condition are in constant pain, too. So that's uh, my little little throw out there about that, that breed of goat. Well, that's good to know. And it's certainly something that I don't know that the uninitiated would be aware of. It's certainly something that I've never heard before. You don't really start thinking about it until you start trying to get into the mind of the animal and then you kind of transfer yourself to them and how if I were an animal that was aware of something could eat me at any moment, <laughs> how would it feel to feel that vulnerable? And and um, and that is why they were used uh, as a sacrificial animal in the sense of, you know, they would throw one of those myotonic goats in with a herd of valuable sheep and knowing that if a predator came, the sheep would escape and the goat would be the one the animal would focus on. And just Jurassic Park all over again, you know, <laughs> tying the goat out. <laughs> yeah, and that breed has a lot of other wonderful qualities, but I, I have to question sometimes what we humans do for the sake of certain characteristics in livestock or animals like bulldogs or, you know, oversized turkeys that can't breed for themselves. And it's kind of strange. Because they are prey animals, predation was one of the questions that I had. And you mentioned the common dog and the coyote, which we certainly have plenty of both here in Pennsylvania. Do goats pair well with a guard animal? Yes, and I do have a good section on that. Depending on what your predator issue is here in Oregon and on our farm, we have mountain lions and bear. There are coyote also, but they don't tend to hang around when there's a mountain lion around. (laughs) So we have livestock guardian dogs, which are a whole category of different breeds. Great Pyrenees, Maremma, Akbosh, Anatolian Shepherd are some of the better known. And then we also have llamas, which can serve as a guardian animal. Not alpacas, those are the smaller fluffy, cute ones, but uh, yeah, they need a guardian animal too, actually, uh, that llamas, llamas will not be able to fight off a mountain lion, but because they're a large, curious presence that usually runs towards something new, they will usually frighten off anything that's not too desperate. So we use them in conjunction with the guardian dogs to help keep that risk risk down. Now, we do also here in our county in Oregon ha- now have a wolf pack, So, and I'm, I'm all for that, but that's going to be a new challenge. You know, the wolves being canines also, they will come in and um, basically just discipline the livestock guardian dog or maim them, and then all the other dogs will now defer to the wolves as the lead, you know, the alpha of the pack. And uh, so it'll, it'll be a new challenge, but if we're going to live on this planet, we've got to adapt, or we should. <laughs> I think I could easily have a follow-up conversation with you to talk about advanced holistic goat care. But in the context of this conversation, I really wanted to touch on kind of a place for beginners. And I know we've covered a broad range of topics and ideas on that so far. But I was wondering if you could speak specifically to some things that people should know or be aware of when they begin? 
Yeah, for sure. You want to study up on the uh, diseases that you could bring in, either on, you know, just that would affect your first animals or that you could bring permanently to your property by purchasing animals with these contagious diseases. And there are a good number of them. And in some parts of the country, those are more concentrated than others. So obviously, I do cover all of this. You want to select a breeder, a person breeding the animals that you feel is honest and trustworthy. Uh, I think that's even more important than figuring out out what breed of goats you want. Uh, Having somebody that's going to be a bit of a mentor, uh, teach you a little bit, be there in case you have some troubles. Uh, You know, they're probably very busy also, but, you know, they need to have some sort of a commitment to that stock. Uh, Then you want to avoid purchasing from um, any sort of online ad structured website, bulletin boards, auctions. Those are a little bit iffy for your first purchases. Um, Whether those animals are registered, pedigreed animals or not, doesn't matter too much unless you have a a plan for a future breeding program. But just getting some good, solid, basic understanding of what you need to have on hand, shelter, and mostly purchasing healthy animals. That makes entering into the world of goat care seem a lot less complicated. Oh, good. (laughs) The goats are constantly reminding me of how little I still know. You can't ever go forward in life knowing enough when you get started with anything. Try to learn some good basic solids and have references available. You know, have a good book to turn to, a good website to turn to, a veterinarian that you can access if you need them, and that goat mentor. And then just get started knowing you're going to learn. Be ready to learn and have the resources to learn. Goats will teach you, and they're constantly teaching me, like I said, what, what I don't know. And you have to be prepared for that, and you also have to accept that sometimes you're not going to be prepared for it. You're going to drop the ball. You're going to not be there. You're going to be out of town. Something's going to happen, and that's just life. And if you have a farm at all of farm animals, you know how humbling it is. And, and, and that's indeed one of the things that I think why we should have them. (laughs) It keeps us centered and grounded, and it's an amazing way to raise kids, your own children, not uh, goat kids. (laughs) And and they learn so much from experiencing all of those ups and downs. And, and, you know, on the bottom line, goats are a gosh darn lot of fun. And you say they're about children. And I think about all the things that I've gone into in life that I wasn't prepared for. And being a parent was certainly one of them. Yeah. It's a good thing you didn't know, right? Or you wouldn't have done it. (laughs) One of my friends said that, you know, if you think that one day you're actually going to be ready to have kids, or if you have a bunch of things that you need to take care of before you're going to be ready to, then you're probably never going to have that day happen because you're never going to be prepared. You're never going to have everything planned out. There's never going to be a right time to do it. So why don't you go ahead and do it now? Yes, it's it's really true. You you do need to like what's the, ask yourself what's the worst that can happen? Will I learn something from that? Am I going to do my best? And that's what you do. You know, we would be stalled and never never move forward at all if we didn't have a little bit of a bravado, not bravado, but you know, a little bit of courage to just get going. And if we have that courage and take that first step forward, 
then whether or not what we're doing succeeds or fails, we will have learned something from it. And as I'm reminded by a friend of mine, failing at something doesn't mean that we're a failure, just that what we were doing didn't work out for some reason, and we can dig into whatever happened, find some lessons from it, and be able to keep moving forward and finding the ways that we can try again and do something different and continue to grow and learn and find deeper confidence and ongoing courage. Amen. And though I certainly feel like there's another conversation or two ahead of us about goats and goat care once this goes live, as we draw this current time together to a close, I always like to end by asking for your final thoughts. So do you have any last words that you'd like to share with the listeners? Hmm. I feel like we almost just said that, you know, with the get some goats and get going kind of thing. But, I, uh, yeah, let's see. I do like people to, to uh, if they're, they're wondering if they'll like goats, if you like human toddlers, you'll love goats. They're, they're just as smart. They really literally are about just as, just as intelligent. They're just as challenging. They'll make you laugh. They'll make you cry. They'll make you uh, swear a little bit, perhaps. <laughs> And they'll, they'll add a lot to your life. Well, I really appreciate hearing that because I'm one of those fathers who absolutely loved that stage. It's, it's a great stage. <laughs> then maybe goats are the right place for me to begin to integrate livestock into my thoughts about permaculture and permaculture design. And today we certainly continued that conversation, not only for me, but also others who are interested in expanding their ideas and thoughts beyond what we normally work on with gardens and food forests, chickens and bees. Thank you for taking the time to join me to record this conversation so that we could share it with the world. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> Thank you. And that was Gianna Cleese Caldwell. Find out more about her and her work at giannacleesecaldwell.com, foliafarm.com, and her book is at chelseagreen.com. You will, of course, find links to all of those in the resource section of the show notes. If you'd like to meet Gianna Cleese, she's appearing in September at the Mother Earth News Fair in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania, and in October at the Mother Earth News Fair in Topeka, Kansas. You'll find more information about those shows at MotherEarthNewsFair.com. I'll be at Seven Springs again this year, and I hope to see you there. Also, this is the first of two conversations with Gianna Cleese with the second scheduled as the last episode in September, when we talk about her first book, which builds on goats and dairying, Mastering Cheesemaking. Stepping away from this conversation, I'm reminded of one of the things that I joke about, which is that I can grow four things well on a little bit of money and hard-scrabbled land. Garlic, strawberries, children, and cats. After this conversation with Gianaclis, though, I'm left inspired about being able to bring livestock onto the land, even though I'm currently landless, as I look for my next project, something like goats makes sense. Not only for what they can do in the landscape itself, eating all that woody material and vines, helping to clear and in turn fertilize land, but also as an animal that can provide dairy for myself and my family, and if we so chose, meat and from my days as a leather worker, the way that their hides could be used for materials in the home and around the homestead 
We often do a needs and yields analysis of a chicken in a permaculture class because of how ubiquitous those birds are in permaculture discussions, taking that image that Bill Mollison gave us of what goes in and what comes out. But with the prospect of city goats and being able to raise them in a suburban setting and the variety of breeds that are available from the small pygmies up to the larger boars and others, then maybe we should look at goats as a primary choice for livestock and our permaculture designs. Have you thought about raising goats? Are you currently raising them? Or can you see integrating goats into your permaculture design? If you have thoughts about that or anything that you heard in this interview, let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, 717-827-6266, or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview, which is out on September 7th for Patreon supporters, and general release on my 38th birthday, September 10th, is my interview with Joel Salatin. Until then, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.